I can't wait for you guys to hear this extremely challenging message so that God can continue to work that he started yesterday uh, through and in all of us today. So listen, he's been here before. Uh, he's the senior pastor of University Presbyterian Church for the last 13 years. He's married to his best friend, Anne, for 31 years. He's got three fabulous kids, Harvey, Will, and Phoebe. And he's a fabulous preacher and a dear, dear friend of mine's. Take it away, Pastor George. Hello, New Beginnings. My name is George Hinman. I was with you two years ago. Some of you are so new, you, you, you all be totally unfamiliar, but it is such a joy to be able to worship Jesus Christ with you again. I love your church. Uh, Pastor Herman, he's a hero to me and uh, such a dear friend. Uh, your ministry in the Bay Area and beyond is an inspiration to us in the wider uh, body of Christ. So it's an honor to worship with you. Behind me, you see the word kindred. I'll tell you a little bit about this more later. This is uh, the name of a partnership of churches that are crossing lines of ethnicity in Seattle to be the body of Christ in action. But you're part of kindred also. Kindred simply means family. You and I are family. New Beginnings is family. The Church of Jesus Christ is family, the multi-ethnic family of God. When Jesus looks at his church, the church that he prays for in John 17, that he asks, Lord, make them one, this church, and he looks from heaven down at us. He does not see a black church, a white church, a Chinese church, a Latino church. He sees his church. He sees us. He sees you. And we are family. So I want to talk to you about this family today, uh, about a family in which your ethnicity is not a liability, it's a gift. Uh, a family that's shaped not by your politics, but by your identity in Christ. In fact, what I'd like to do is share something with you that you can do in order to draw other people into this family that we up here call kindred. So let's read Isaiah 57 together, pull out a Bible. Uh, I, I call this message, The Obstruction in Me. Uh, we'll be thinking about the whole chapter, Isaiah 57, but we'll reading and focusing in particular on Isaiah 57, verses 14 and 15. So you may want to read aloud with me. You may even choose to stand with me as a way of honoring uh, the Lord about whom all of Scripture is written. When we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully. We're reading God's holy word. It shall be said... Build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with those who are contrite and humble in spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what we just read never will. Thanks be to God. Well, this text, these two verses, give us really the heart of Isaiah 57. You could say they give us the heart of the whole book of Isaiah. Because here God reveals where God lives and how we can help people find him. 
Listen again to this beautiful description of where God lives in verse 15. Look, listen to what he says. I dwell, I live there. I dwell in the high and holy place. And also with those who are contrite, or literally, scholars tell us that could be translated crushed, those who have been crushed, and humble in spirit, or literally those who have been humbled, whose spirit has been humbled by challenges of life, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with those who are crushed and humbled. Isn't that interesting? I wonder what we can learn about you from where you live. Well, here's what we learn about God. We learn about his highness and his lowness. We learn about his majesty and his tenderness. We learn about his holiness and his mercy. I live high and lifted up. I live with the crushed and who are humbled. You see that? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts, Isaiah tells us in Isaiah chapter 6. He sees God's highness. And then in chapter 42, a bruised reed he will not break. A dimly burning wick he will not quench. That's lowliness. The Lord is revealing himself to us through Isaiah, saying, I live in the high and holy place. And with the crushed and humbled. See, already, this points us to the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? The gospel is the good news that God has reconciled us to himself in Jesus Christ. He's done it in Jesus Christ. The God who dwells in the high and holy place, holds together all things, time and space, he has entered into creation. He has humbled himself, become a servant, walked among us, been crushed for our the iniquities, the, for the forgiveness of our sins on the cross. And then on the third day, he burst forth from the tomb. He was eventually exalted to the right hand of the Father. He has the name that is above every other name. He is so high and lifted up. So already God is pointing us to the gospel of Jesus Christ. God here reveals where God lives. And, as I said, and, how we can help people find him. Check this out, verse 14. Something's being built. Did you notice this? A highway. This this Hebrew here is the language of highway construction. They say in Russia that there are only two seasons, winter and road construction. And it seems to be true here. Do you notice how, if you read the book of Isaiah, so often this highway, the preparing of a way, uh, comes up. Well, that's what's going on here. There's a construction project, uh, and it's a highway. In Isaiah, this highway is the, the route that so many will take. It's a highway that God will take. It's about coming home, actually. God will come home to Zion. Uh, the exiles will come home to Zion on this highway. Even the nations of the earth, the four corners of the earth, will release all the nations, all the ethnicities, God's rich creation in the differences of human beings, will be released and they'll travel on this highway home to God. This is, this is what, what God is inviting us to build, a highway that brings people home to family, reconciliation, and God in Jesus Christ. 
And, and, and we get a picture of this early in Isaiah where he sort of sets up the hole in chapter two. There's a mountain, Mount Zion, that's Jerusalem in the future, lifted up over every other mountain. And, and the nations of the earth come streaming from far and wide to hear the, the, the word of the Lord. And on that mountain, peace begins. They'll crush, they'll, uh, they'll turn their uh, spears into plowshares. They'll beat them. They'll turn their pruning hooks their uh, spears into pruning hooks, their swords into plowshares, right? You know that passage. It's, and they shall learn war no more. Someday this highway will carry the nations of the earth to God and Jesus Christ and peace and justice and reconciliation. God's peace and justice and reconciliation will become manifest for all. And so he's calling his people here in the 8th century BC to this project, remove every obstruction, from my people's way. Take, take it out the obstructions, which is what you do when you're building a highway, right? You m- remove obstructions. You take some soil and you have to build it up so that the rains won't wash it out. And you start pulling out rocks and tree stumps and roots, anything that's in the way that would make it impassable. Anything between the nations and God, remove these obstructions. So this is where I begin to think. I wonder, what are the obstructions in me? What are the obstructions in us? This is a question for anyone who wants to help the ethnicities find God. Well, not long ago, the Derek Chauvin verdict came in. And I remember exactly where I was when it did. Maybe you did also. I was on the phone. I was talking with an African-American friend. And he said, oh, oh, the, the Chauvin verdict is in. Guilty. Murder. 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 And I've been thinking about my emotions when I heard that. What did that feel like to you? My first emotion was relief. Oh, so uh, relieved that an African-American found justice in an American courtroom. My next reaction was honestly embarrassment. I, was em- I felt embarrassed that this was even a news story, that this was even a question at all, and, and that so often African-Americans and ethnic minorities of all kinds don't actually get justice in an American courtroom. But what really sticks to me was the the tone in my African-American friend's voice as he described this verdict, it was unmistakable. It was happiness. I had not heard this friend as happy as he sounded in that moment for the last more than a year. And I thought about that. Why the happiness? Well, I think it's because for him, when George Floyd got justice in an American courtroom, it meant that George Floyd's life mattered. And if George Floyd's life mattered in America, then my friend's life matters in America. And he was happy about that. That same day, it was a Tuesday, I remember, we up here, we had a panel on anti-Asian racism. And in our panel, we heard stories uh, we heard from like, a student who had come to University of Washington from Hawaii. And when she got here, someone said to her, oh, you're a person of color, aren't you? It meant it friendly and respectful, but it, it came across as that you're not one of us. You're different. 
Or we heard stories of somebody in a taxi cab, and the cab driver said, where are you from? And she said, I'm from here. And he said, no, but where are you really from? You know, this is a third generation American. I'm from here. This is my home. But in that cab, she didn't feel at home. We, young adults who, as they're watching the news and hearing stories of rising anti-Asian racism, a surge of it, they're afraid even right now to go to the grocery store. See, it was stories like these that began Kindred, this partnership here in Seattle. Let me just tell you briefly the story. In 2016, the first week in July, you may remember, there were four officer-involved shootings of African-Americans and Latinos, four deaths. And then by the end of the week, there were five police officers who were shot in Dallas, Texas. It was horrifying. And I remember going to church. I went across town to an African-American church in Seattle, and the preacher that day was Pastor Aaron Williams. And he was preaching on the parable of the Good Samaritan, and he reminded us Dr. King's teachings. Martin Luther King Jr. told us that if week after week, year after year, you have somebody walking the Jericho Road, getting hurt, we don't just care for the person who gets hurt. We've got to move the road. We've got to fix the road. And it was out of that that a partnership was formed. A historically white church, University of Presbyterian Church, where I serve. Historically African-American church, Mount Zion, and the Damascus International Fellowship. And historically Chinese church, evangelical Chinese church, very large congregation across Seattle, joined together and said, let's consider ourselves the family of Jesus Christ, kindred with one another. And we formed this partnership. Now, that was five years ago, 2016, and the question for me and maybe for you is, you know, how are we doing in America? So what I'm aware of is that so often we are pitted against one another, white against black, Japanese against Chinese, black against Latino, one ethnicity against the other, against one another. And here we are, though. Here you are, New Beginnings, right? And and you're a multi-ethnic church. And so the question is, What is God saying to you in this moment, right now? What might he be saying to you? Well, I don't know that I dare to tell you what I I wouldn't know. What I do know, and and I'm hearing with increasing clarity, is what God is saying to me. And if you'll let me, I'd like to share that with you. I want to tell you about two struggles and two things that God is sharing with me at this time. And the first one is this. To me, God says, George, Focus on yourself. Focus on yourself. Of course, this is what happens when you're confronted by the highness of God. This is what happens when we come before one who dwells in the high and holy place. See, Israel comes before the Lord, their covenant partner, and they say, we want to talk to you about the Assyrians. And God says, no, I've got you here to talk to you about you. Peter comes before Jesus. He says, I want to talk to you about John. And Jesus says, no, Peter, we're here to talk about you. Isaiah comes before the Lord. and He says, I want to talk to you about Judah. The Lord says, no, we want to talk about you. And that's when Isaiah throws up his hands and he says, woe is me, for I am lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And the Lord says to him in that moment, I want to talk to you about the obstruction in you. 
And this is what he's been saying to me. What's the obstruction in you, George? I'm not talking to you about police or taxi cabs, people with knives, lawyers or politicians. I'm talking to you about you. Now, of course, to me, this is a great disappointment, right? It's so much easier to identify blame in somebody else and so much more fun than it have to wrestle with my own complicity. But the Philip Roth, the great novelist wrote, we go through life with a generalized sense that everybody is wrong except us. I love that. The name of that, you scientists, call it attribution bias. Attribution bias is the tendency to excuse ourselves and blame other people for the very same behavior. For example, if a colleague of mine comes to a meeting late, what do I say to myself? I say, they didn't plan that very well. But when I come to the same meeting the next week, late, what do I say to myself? Whew, the traffic was really bad, right? That's, that's attribution bias. Judging ourselves by our intentions, judging other people by their actions. The tendency to excuse ourselves, but to blame other people. Jesus knows all about this. That's why he says, focus on the log that's in your own eye before you try to take out a speck from somebody else's. Focus on your own obstruction. Now, yes, there are obstructions to reconciliation in other people. And yes, we can speak to them about that, and we should. But we don't control those uh, other people. We, we have so much more influence over ourselves than others. And so what does this mean for me? For one thing, it means a whole lot less virtue signaling and a whole lot more soul searching. Let me give you an example. Let me talk to you about my theology, by which I mean how I understand God, how I read the Bible. Because in Isaiah 57, if you go and read that whole chapter, and I hope you will, you'll see that the backdrop is a people, God's people, who have mixed theology with culture. And they have lost their sense of the highness of God who stands over culture. It's as though God says, you know, when I hear all of your God talk and I see all of your pious practices, to me it looks more like spiritual adultery. In verse 12, he says, I will expose. Some translations say, I will declare. I will expose this in you. Because it's like they don't even seem to really know it, that they've mixed culture and theology. And I wonder... What along the way has been mixed in with my theology that, that isn't of the Lord? Did you know that in 1667, the Virginia Assembly passed a law that said, baptism does not make enslaved people free? 1667. Now, why would they do that here in America? The reason is because in England, Christians did not generally hold other Christians as private property, as slaves. That was not the practice. But in Virginia, in the colonies here, they wanted to make sure that practice didn't come across the Atlantic. Why? Because it would hurt their economic aspirations. And so in order to, to do this, to pass this law and enforce it, they had to start to lie to themselves. They had to tell them lies about... Um, that white people were better than black people. They had to tell them lies that uh, 
that you could free the soul somehow, but not the body. They had to tell themselves lies that baptism doesn't change the relationships between people or doesn't transform society in any way. They tell themselves these lies. They're mixing their theology now with the culture. That is not just a historical anomaly and a tragedy. It's actually an obstruction. The African-American intellectual of the 19th century, Frederick Douglass, wrote, between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. See, the thing is, this isn't just history. This is something in me. Because the people who taught me to read the Bible were taught by people who were taught by people who were taught by people in Virginia. Now, this is a real challenge uh, for me. It, it, it asked me to ask myself, how are my ideas about myself, about race, about justice, about baptism, about God, shaped by the traditions of men, not by the word of God? I've been helped quite a bit by this, and if you're interested in this topic, I would encourage you to read uh, Dr. Esau Macaulay's book, Reading While Black. But here's the thing. What I'm saying is that God is calling me through Isaiah to engage with his highness. This is the one who says, my name is holy. I dwell in eternity. Now, we tend to think if we're going to remove obstructions from people and different cultures, we, we need to become like the culture. But that's not what Isaiah is saying. He's saying exactly the opposite. We need to become different from our culture. We need to become like our God. Holy, holy, holy. And God is saying to me, I want you like me. I, I want my searing holiness to bring attraction to your, transformation to your life. And that's, that's what's going to attract people to me. And I would do almost anything to avoid that holiness. I would even tell myself lies. But God is saying, no, George, I love you too much. I love you too much to leave those obstructions inside of you. So I'm here to help you remove them because we're building a highway. I've been doing some soul searching. The Lord has been saying to me, quit working on others and start working on yourself. He's speaking to me and he's saying, George, focus on yourself. That's the first message I've been hearing right now. The second message I've been hearing is similar, but even more challenging. He's saying to me, George, I want you to disadvantage yourself. Disadvantage yourself. Now, this is what happens when we're confronted by the lowliness of God. When we come before the one who dwells with the crushed and humbled you see, Israel is looking for its own advantage, right? They're God's chosen people. Aren't there some perks that come with this? But immediately God introduces them to the ministry of the suffering servant. If you're reading Isaiah, you've read about that already in the chapters that precede this chapter. The ministry of the suffering servant is the ministry of those who give their life for the sake of others. It's the ministry of Jesus, and so to me, the Lord is saying, what obstruction, George, stands in the way of my multi-ethnic family that you can remove? 
what's out there getting in the way that you can remove from someone, a brother or a sister of a different color? Now, this is a real challenge for me. I'm white, I am male, and I am upper middle class. I don't know if you noticed. And I don't make any apologies about that. To be totally honest, I'm so glad to be me, and I hope you're glad to be you. But being me entails many advantages. I've got advantages. Now, here's what Jesus says about that. He says, from everyone to whom much has been given, much is required. Okay, make sure you heard that. That's Jesus. I'm not talking about Marxism. I'm talking about Jesus. This is righteousness, according to Jesus. According to the Bible, the righteous person is the person who disadvantages themselves in order to advantage others. Bruce Waltke tells us that. Bruce Waltke is an Old Testament scholar extraordinaire. He was on the NIV translation team, so it's like he wrote the Bible. And he wrote the uh, preeminent two-volume commentary in the book of Proverbs. And here's what he says. He says, the righteous disadvantage themselves to advantage others, while the wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. Did you get that? Advantage others by disadvantaging yourself. Let me give you an example of that. I remember a manager of a team that was going through a merger, and there were two teams that did the same thing, and they were going to come together and be combined into one. And this manager looked across at the other organization, and he saw the manager of the other team was somebody who was relatively disadvantaged in that corporate culture. And he said to himself, you know what? I'm fairly late in my career, and she's fairly early in her career. You know what he did? He resigned his role as a manager and took a different place on the team. So that when those two teams come together, the person who had been disadvantaged could be advantaged, and that she could rise up and become the manager of this whole new, larger team and have greater scope. That's what the righteous do. That's what Bruce Walke tells us. He disadvantaged himself in order to advantage somebody else. Now, I know how to do this. I'm really good at this with my own family, right? I mean, I've got three kids. Uh, they're all young adults now. Over the last 20, 30 years, disadvantaging myself in order to advantage my family has been a driving compulsion, right? I've constantly done it. Uh, time, energy, money, oh, just so that they will find security and flourish. It's as though God is saying, okay, George, I see that, and you've done well. Now I'm going to ask you, would you be willing to do that for your kindred family? You see, your immediate family, the bond there is just genetic. But your kindred family, if you're a follower of Jesus, your lordship to Jesus Christ is greater than your than, than your bond with other family members. Jesus teaches us this. And the bonds of his family, kindred family, those are not genetic bonds. Those are bonds forged in the blood of his son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. If you know how to disadvantage yourself for your nuclear family, and you do it so well, when are you going to start showing what that looks like for my kindred family, the Lord is saying to me? And I, 
Okay. This is challenging. When I, when I hear that question, let me tell you, immediately I come into contact with another obstruction in me, and that is fear. Totally, I'm, I'm just a little bit, not proud to say this, but fear. Fear that if I did that, I would lose not only my advantage, but I would lose the advantages of my family. That I would risk their security as well as my own, and I'm afraid of that. But here's where the text helps us. Here's where the text has such deep wisdom and power. Because you have to understand that when you read the wider chapter, you'll see fear was also driving Israel. Fear was what got in their uh, way. Isaiah exposes the idolatry of God's people. And their idolatry, like all idolatry, is always driven by fear. It's the pursuit of false security. This is the attraction of idolatry. It's security without any ethical obligations. It's trying to gain your own advantage without having to worry about injustice or the needs of the community or of others. That's why God's people weren't sure that they wanted to be God's covenant partners because he had these obligations. He kept saying, yeah, but how are you doing with your brother or your sister? And they... They turn from that and they turn to idolatry and it's the kind of idolatry that the text says is just going to exhaust you. It's not true or real security. It will ultimately let you down. And he calls them back to himself. And it's actually God's lowliness that dissipates fear. It's the insight of Isaiah that this is a God who lives, he dwells with those who fail. He lives with those who hurt. He dwells among those who are marginalized. He lives with those who are insecure. He lives even with those who sin. This is God's grace. He comes down into the, the loneliness of our lives. He dwells among us when we are crushed and humbled. It's as though the Lord were saying to me, I will meet you in your lowliness. When you find yourself lowly, you will find me because I am a God of the crushed and humbled. And now I'm coming into contact with the perfect love that casts out fear. It's as though the Lord were saying to me, George, even if you were to disadvantage yourself out of all your earthly comforts, you will find true security in me. Count on it. Count on me. I could hear him whispering to me, Isaiah 49, verses 15 and 16. The Lord says, can a woman forget her nursing child or show no compassion for the child of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hand. That's the Lord, Isaiah 49, 15 and 16. Go read that. That's for you. I have inscribed your name on the palms of my hand. Does that not remind us of God's love for us on the cross of Jesus Christ? What I'm saying is that God is calling me through Isaiah to engage with his lowliness. I revive the spirit of the humbled, he promises us in verse 15. <laughs> me, yes, I resist uh, lowliness. I resist his lowliness because I'm working so hard to protect my own advantages. But where else will I find true security and true freedom as a white person to give up control and advantage in order to help secure a sister, a brother, an uncle, an aunt, a grandchild, a grandparent in God's family, in kindred, 
It's his lowliness that draws us. It's his lowliness that will draw others. Oh, brothers and sisters, I've been doing some soul searching. Find ways to disadvantage yourself so you can advantage others, the Lord is saying to me. So these two messages, focus on yourself, disadvantage yourself. Build up, build up, prepare the way. Remove every obstruction from my people's way. God promises to gather the nations. He's promised. He's building a highway, and you and I are on the construction team. What obstructions are there in me? I don't know. That might be a good question for all of us to ask. You might choose to ask it yourself. You might turn it into a prayer and ask the Lord, Lord, what happens when I come before you in your highness? What happens in me? Lord, what happens when I come before you in your lowness? Lowliness, what happens in me? Lord, what obstruction is there in me that you would like to remove? I know it's hard. It's been hard for me. I understand that if you're white, it's hard to face feelings of guilt and fear and loss. I understand that if you're Asian, it's hard sometimes to find your place in a conversation that so often feels binary between black and white. I understand that if you're black, it's hard to face a conversation that always, always entails exhaustion and hurt and distrust. And so I say, I I don't know how we do this. I really don't. But I do know this. We are all in this together. Right now, we are. You are at New Beginnings. We are, kindred, all together. And I know this, that if the racialization of society... If the sin, and it is a sin, of mistreating one another on the basis of skin color or misunderstanding, if the unabated violence continues, there will be no peace for you, me, or anybody else. It was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. who said, we must live as brothers or die as fools. And the truth is, Jesus has already got this. God has already reconciled the world to himself in Jesus Christ. He's already done it, past tense. That's our past, that's our future. Reconciliation is our destiny. We don't have to create it. We don't have to go find it. We just have to receive it as a gift from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are reconciled to God and to one another. Now it's time to live into that reality. But you know what it means? It means right now, you and I have what our culture most needs. And they yearn for this kind of reconciliation and justice. Real peace. Have no idea where to find it. But we do. We do. We know it can be found only in Jesus Christ. And you are a part of this already. That's what God has been doing at New Beginnings for many years now. And it's so encouraging to see. You're a a network of believers in all these different disciplines, technology, education, medicine, law enforcement, real estate, construction, arts. In each of these disciplines and so many other, just imagine what happens if you continue to network together with one another, cross lines of ethnicity, and ask ourselves, how can we together work to remove the obstructions that are getting in the nation's way as they yearn for peace and unity. So here's the invitation, finally. Will you join me in self-examination? That's the invitation today. 
Will you join me in self-examination? Would you be bold enough to ask, what are the obstructions in me? I don't know what they are. Maybe you don't know what they are, but I do know the Lord knows what they are. And he's committed to speaking to us through his word and spirit, just as clearly as he spoke to Isaiah. So if you join me, then I want to encourage you to pray Psalm 139 with me. Listen to these words. This is our prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. See if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Would you join me in asking our Lord Jesus Christ to open up our hearts to a new thing? Ask him to do a new thing in you, in your family, in new beginnings, in the Bay Area, and around the world. Because at the end of the day, we are all family. We're kindred. And because the God of the great highway has bent low to lift us high. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, oh, we thank you for the blessings of your redemptive work. Thank you that you promised to make all things new, to make a way where there is no way. And you have done that so beautifully through the life, teachings, death, and resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Before him, we bow joyfully today. He is the one who has come to dwell among us in our brokenness. He is the one who is exalted to the right hand of the Father and who's worthy, worthy, worthy to be praised. His name is the name above all other names. We worship you, Lord Jesus, and we thank you. We pray today again that you would pour out a fresh measure of your Holy Spirit among all who hear my voice. Lord, renew us afresh that we might be your kingdom people, giving witness to the great reconciliation. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Man, what a powerful, powerful message, Pastor George. How you've challenged all of us. And listen, guys, if, you, if this is your first time, listen, we believe that you don't just hear messages like that and just go about your business. All of us are called to respond. And one of the ways we do it here is by engaging our connection card. It's popping up at this very second in the Facebook chat. It's also on our website. And if you have an NBCC app, just go ahead and open it right now. And you go to the Sunday screen. You'll see the connection card link. Tap that link and you'll see next steps with Jesus. Now check this out. Lean in here, guys. For somebody listening to me, you know, you know your way through the obstruction is to allow Jesus today to surrender your life to him. Say, I want, I want you to be Lord and Redeemer in my life, both in time and eternity. I want you to, to release and, and unleash the power of your Holy Spirit within me. I want you to take up residence. If you're ready to make that commitment, just go ahead and check that uh, box. So just simply just raise your hand and say, Jesus, I'm yours. Just say, Jesus, I'm yours. And for somebody else, it's like the, the next box is the opportunity to return back to your faith, to return to Jesus. And somebody else, you just want more information? Cool, no worries. Check the box. We'll follow up with you. We'll be delighted to do that. Now, I want everybody to focus on the response to the message. It's the next section of the connection card. If you're not looking at the connection card, I'm going to pop it up here. It's popping up right here on the screen. It is a commitment that I think the Holy Spirit is challenging all of us to make. Are you ready? Let me just, let's just share it with you. I commit to self-examination. Shout self-examination. 
and pray. Here's the means to which I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to help me with this self-examination. I'll pray Psalms 139, 23 through 24, which essentially says, Search me, O Lord, and know my heart, and see if there's any offensive thing, any obstruction within me, because I want you to lead me in the way of life. All right? With that in your mind, uh, uh, listen, just raise your hand and say, God, count me in. I'm going to do that work. I'm going to do that work. Okay, another step in that work is we've captured in the reflection question here. And so take out your phone, take a picture of this. Here's what you got to wrestle with. In a divided world, what obstructions are there in me? That's the work that you're going to be doing. All right. Listen, if you live locally here in the Bay Area, there are two ways now that you connect with us and our worship uh, gathering. You can connect with us during our online times at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. Pacific time. Or you can pre-register on starting every Monday to connect with us uh, in our in-person watch party gathering at our Redwood City campus. Okay, cool. Come back next week. I will close this series out. You do not want to miss it.